0: The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, he's caused us to be born again, and he, he just rhapsodizes from there. And so it, we began in this book by seeing the certainty and security of our salvation. And then from chapter 1, verse 13, uh, through to where about we are today, uh, Peter is drawing out some of the implications of our salvation. Uh, the first one is holy living. We see that in chapter 1. Uh, also, that, that there should be love and unity in the church family. And then in the beginning of chapter 4 as Matt brought to us last time he preached from uh this book uh, serving God as the holy nation as his true people the, the spiritual Israel that that we're 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 bricks in this structure we're living stones together uh in this community of God um we are the true royal people of God in fact you might remember Matt asking who are the royals and they're not just a team in Kansas City they are it's us we are the holy chosen royal people of God, a kingdom of priests. And so that's where we're at. And the reason Peter is setting it up this way, is because he's writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor who are undergoing persecution for their faith, uh, many of them. And so uh, I I think I want to ground everything here in verse 12, actually. So take a look at just the verse before where we started reading there. In verse 12, it kind of gives the foundation for, for where he's going in this text. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice not if, but when they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this morning, we'll see that our salvation drives us to glorify God in a hostile world by imitating Christ in his submission, service and suffering. And those will be the three points that we'll camp out on there this morning. So honoring God in the social sphere is where Peter is taking this, and this is the flavor that the rest of uh, chapters 2 and 3 take, uh, because not only does he focus on submission to all these various authorities, but then he talks about life in the home, and the gospel has implications for all these parts of life, but uh, right now he focuses on authority and on suffering, and it's a little bit uh, countercultural, because if there's two things that we don't particularly enjoy as Americans, it's submission to authority and it's pain, And so, naturally, this is where we're going this morning. Our salvation drives us to glorify God in a hostile world by imitating Christ in submission, service, and suffering. So, first, in verses 13 through 17, I want to dive into that topic of submission to authority. Our first point is that salvation drives us to submit to the civil magistrate. And you might be thinking, okay, what does this have to do with salvation? How does salvation drive us to submit to governmental authorities, which is not natural for us as Americans who grew up nodding in agreement to slogans like don't tread on me and give me liberty or give me death. Right. So let's see where Peter grounds this first. In verse 13, he says, be subject. Why? For the Lord's sake to every human institution. So it's for the Lord's sake. It's for the sake of God. It's specifically for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Because all civil authority is grounded in Christ. In John 19, you might recall when he's on trial, Jesus says to the rulers, he says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it were what? Given to you from on high. And then in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and disciple the nations, baptizing them. So, all of this civil authority is delegated authority from Christ. And civil servants, if, you, if, you, if you're reading this and if you know your New Testament, you're going to hear echoes of Romans 13 because it's very similar where Paul preaches that, uh, that the civil servants are God's deacons, his diaconoi, literally his deacons, his servants, uh, to, to punish those who do evil, to reward those who do good. So God delegates this authority. So if we're submitted to the lordship of Christ and that's a piece of salvation, we're going to also be submitted to the lesser authorities that are over us. We, we teach this in our home pretty often uh, to to Davion, our, our oldest, uh, because the, the reality is it's very easy, especially for a child, but I think for all of us too, to talk a big game about, you know, I, I love Jesus. He's my Lord. I submit to him. He's my master. I follow him. Um, and yet we have a much harder time submitting to the lower, much lesser authorities. And so in the case of children, it's, It's okay, you say you love Jesus, he's your Lord, you're singing these worship songs, that's great. In fact, those of you who have seen Davion around, you know he's often being the worship leader. (laughs) But uh, clean your room, (laughs) right? You need to clean your room. You need to have manners at the table. You need to submit to your parents. It's easy to talk about submitting to the lordship of Jesus, but when he delegates that authority to someone else who's over us, a a governor, an emperor, a parent, an HOA, It's a little harder to submit in that case. So who is it? Because he's delegated this authority, who is it that we're to submit to? So let's go on in verses 13 and 14. It says, Submit to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, by the emperor, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So every human institution, every legitimate institution of authority is in view here the government, the school board, the HOA, any legitimate human institution. But there's a particular elephant in the room that that we should also address with this text if you're thinking about the context of the first century. This is written to people living in the Roman Empire, specifically under the reign of Nero, the worst emperor, arguably, that that empire had seen. Arguably, that the planet is seen. Just to give you an idea, this is the same Nero who fed Christians to lions, burned them alive uh, for light throughout the city of Rome. He murdered his mother at the behest of his mistress, whom he then divorced, and then he uh, castrated and married a young boy and then committed suicide. So that's the Nero we're talking about. And Peter says, be subject to the emperor. So the question that this creates for us as uh, self-independent Americans is, uh, should tyrants have their way? Do Christians roll over when the government goes far beyond its God-ordained realm of responsibility and authority, as the pagan Roman Empire did at the time that Peter was writing this? What should we do with Roe v. Wade, with, Ober- with Obergefell? Do we, because these things are in some way the law of the land. Do, do we do we submit to these things? Do we do we carry them out? Are we complicit in tyranny? as Christians, as followers of Christ. It's interesting, and I don't think it should be lost on us, that this is the same Apostle Peter who said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when, when the Apostles were being told for the first time to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, what did he say? We must obey God rather than men. So clearly Peter was able to handle this tension between there's, there's times that, that we have to honor the government, but there's other times that being a Christian means standing against those things. It's the same Peter. And if you look down at verse 17, there's a logical order here, and I think it helps us. Verse 17, Peter sums all this up and says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And then these two phrases here, fear God, honor the emperor. So fear God first, submit everything to God, fear him, the fear of the Lord, and then honor the emperor. He doesn't say fear the emperor Not just in terms of being afraid, but but the the whole person's submission. He doesn't say that that should be rendered to the emperor. In fact, in chapter 3, the very next chapter, in verse 14, he says, Fear no one. Fear no men. We shouldn't have fear of man. So he says, Fear God only, but then honor the emperor. So from this we get three principles, and this is what I would put before you today. First, submission to government cannot violate the law of God. Submission to government cannot violate the law of God. Scripture is replete with these examples, right? We saw several weeks ago in Acts chapter one, uh I'm sorry, Exodus chapter one. Uh the, the women who, who saved the Hebrew boys in direct opposition to Pharaoh's order. There's all sorts of examples that we could draw out. Submission to government is only legitimate insofar as we don't have to break God's law in order to do so. Second, Christian civil disobedience is necessarily civil civil disobedience is civil so even if we do have to disobey on on account of conscience or because the lordship of christ you know you're you're being told you cannot preach the gospel if we have to disobey those laws we can at least do so showing honor and respect and we can do so agreeably out of an attitude of love and third we influence culture as christians primarily not through revolution but through reformation And we'll talk a little bit more on this as we get into uh, verse 18. Uh, But it's this idea that we don't we don't overthrow. You know, Peter doesn't say overthrow Nero. He says, submit. Why? It's in it's in God's hands. We entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God. There's no government so bad that we're not told here that we ought to submit to it, at least insofar as we're able. It's a humbling thing, but that's what it means that, that God is sovereign and that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords is that we can trust him. He's the one who will deal with these things. He's the one putting all of his enemies under his feet, according to Psalm 110. We're the ones who submit and who trust. And this submission is a witness in our culture. In this culture here, Jews were thought to just, I'm sorry, Christians were thought to be just another Jewish sect that was basically political revolutionaries. And so the Christians would undermine all of these false expectations by living as submissive, good Roman citizens. So it's a witness. And in verse 15, we see that this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter is aware that this is not a pain-free submission. He's aware of the difficulties that they're facing. He's aware that, that the surrounding culture is not a fan of them. But he says that by doing good, they are to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there are times to stand boldly and preach the gospel, right? We saw that with Peter when he said it's better to obey God than men, right? But there are other times, Lord knows, there's other times when people are so foolish and ignorant in the rejection of the gospel, so hard-hearted towards it, that our simple, submissive, honorable holy living catches them so off guard it befuddles them and it puts them to shame isn't that good to know isn't that a sigh of relief for us that sometimes the way that we disarm the most vocal opponents of the faith is just by living godly lives to me that's refreshing to me that's that's freeing and and this is What the situation was in the first century and it's what the situation is today is that God wants our opponents These vocal opponents of the faith those whose hearts are hard and they're not changing anytime soon He does want to silence them. He says it's the will of God that they would be silenced So God is serious about this. God is is not just rolling over He's serious that they would be silenced, but it's not through our loud clamoring It's not through being keyboard warriors on social media. It's not through being the the loudest, most vocal people arguing. But it's by doing good. It's by sharing truth meekly and with a good conscience. And we get into more of this in chapter 3. But by doing good, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, this is great in the realm of government. This is great for those that live in the Roman Empire. By God's grace, our government hasn't degraded that far yet. Uh, Our society is a little bit better than theirs, perhaps. But where this really gets personal is in the realm of our daily lives in the workplace, doesn't it? It's easy to submit and respect a, a, a figurehead or a head of state on a television screen that you can't see. But in the workplace, this is where this really gets personal. And so our second point is that our salvation directs us to serve our masters and to serve them joyfully. So. Submitting to government, as if though that's not countercultural enough for us Americans. Serving masters all the more so. And Peter kind of anticipates this question. Now, wait a second. Aren't we free in Christ? Because he, he says in verse 16, live as people who are free. So he acknowledges, yes, we are free in Christ. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter says, Servants, submit to your masters with all respect, the good and the bad and the ugly, those who treat you well, those who don't treat you well. But even though you're free in Christ, this freedom doesn't mean doing whatever you want. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we're autonomous. It means that we belong to a superior master. Before we were God's servants, before we were followers of Christ, who is Lord, that's a term of authority, we were slaves of sin. We weren't free, we were enslaved to a different master, we were enslaved to sin. This is the Apostle's point in Romans chapter 6, if you have time to read it this week because it's relevant to multiple points here in this text. But no one is truly autonomous. Autonomy is a myth. Free will insofar as I'm free to do whatever I want without any kind of outside influence from anyone whatsoever. That doesn't exist anywhere in the world because we're controlled by our influences, our own appetites. And if, if I chafe against that idea, if I find myself sitting here this morning chafing against the idea that as a Christian, I'm actually a slave to righteousness and a slave to Christ, if I'm a Christian at all. We should check our hearts and ask, is my view of the gospel one where I get a free pass to sin? Or am I submitting in love to God because I'm grateful for his salvation? Am I grating against his lordship or embracing it? So Christian freedom is to be bound to a better master. And that's Jesus. And if the gospel is that I'm now free from sin in order that I can obey this new master, then this should have real implications in the way that I am when I submit to my masters at work and in the workplace. So let's return to that for a moment. Verse 16, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he begins by addressing servants. Let's, let's figure out who this is here. In, in the Greek, the term is oiketai. This is a household slave. So, probably a, a step below on the on the social ladder from what we would think of it in terms of a servant. Um, and really, he's addressing, in some ways, the institution of slavery. So that that, that causes us to ask the question again: If Christians, you know, first we we had to ask. You know, do, do Christians roll over when there's tyranny? Next, are, is, is Peter here embracing the institution of slavery? And it's true that he's not explicitly condemning the institution of slavery, uh, but he's also looking at things from a 30,000-foot view in his cultural context. And so let's just bring that to bear for a moment. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world, while it was harsh, while we should not whitewash it, uh, was much more like what we would probably call indentured servitude, servitude most times than what we would think of when we think of slavery, which is American chattel slavery. And people were able to sell themselves into slavery to absolve themselves of debts that they wouldn't pay otherwise. There was no bankruptcy options. And so the, the the difference between this sort of indentured servitude slavery, which is most of what existed in the Greco-Roman world, and American chattel slavery that was so horribly oppressive Uh, Is Think of what is owned. Is it the work that's owned or the worker that's owned? So someone would sell their, their, their labor. They would sell themselves into slavery and their owner owns the deed to all of their labor until the value of their debt is paid off. But they themselves are not owned as far as being treated as chattel, being regarded as an animal. So there is an important distinction there where perhaps we can, we can look objectively and say maybe that's why Peter doesn't come out with a railing accusation against this institution of slavery from a 30,000 foot view, recognizing that it includes things like indentured servitude. But you'll recall we mentioned earlier uh, when we were looking at, at submission to civil authority that the way that we influence culture is through reformation primarily and not through revolution. And we see that at play here. In terms of slavery, because the, the, the reality is, and, and if you're going off to college on a secular campus or perhaps you have some secular unbelieving friends or, or perhaps you're, you're here today and and you're not necessarily a proponent of biblical Christianity, you will ask or you will hear people ask the question, does the Bible condemn slavery? Doesn't it condone slavery instead? But if it weren't for the biblical Christian worldview and its radical claims that were all made in the imago Dei, the image of God. And the fact that, that Paul himself says that we're, we're all equal in Christ, Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11, there's no slave or free in Christ. If those principles hadn't worked their way into Western thought, slavery wouldn't have been abolished in the West in the first place whatsoever. And the average secularist on the street wouldn't have a foundation upon which to complain against the, the immorality of the institution of slavery. And this is how the kingdom of God generally works itself in the history, primarily in a reformational way, not a not a revolutionary way. It's like the, it's like the leaven in the lump. Matthew 13, uh, 22 and 23, Jesus uses the parable of a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, leavening the whole lump, but it's gradual. He also compares the kingdom of God to the smallest of all seeds, a mustard seed that's planted in the person and work of Christ, and then ultimately grows into this, huge tree that, that even the birds of the air are, are making their nests in. And, and, and so the reality is, is if, if Peter and the other apostles hadn't said things like, hey, masters, treat your servants with respect. By the way, you're all one in Christ. And, and servants also submit to your masters in love. Because of that approach, which levels everybody before God and levels everybody before the cross, and we wouldn't be standing here today assuming what we see now looking back in history about the the immorality of slavery. And so it's it's a beautiful testament to truly how the gospel can can permeate thoughts and cultures even where not everyone has necessarily embraced it. So this isn't just written for slaves. We shouldn't read this as it's written to to household slaves or to servants and say this doesn't apply to me today because the truth is this applies to the employee-employer relationship too. And I imagine much more of us in this room can relate to that sort of scenario. And I need to confess that when he says uh, submitting to good employers and to bad employers alike, ones who treat you fairly, ones who treat you unfairly, submit to all of them, I'll be the first to confess that I struggle with this. And I don't have any excuse because I've just been blessed to have mostly wonderful Christian employers for for most of my my time and work. Um, Just sort of Somehow it turns out that everywhere I work, my boss is a, is a believer and I've just had a pretty easy go of things. And so I have no excuse when my my pride and my, my irritability and my, my selfishness come through and I want what I want. Right. If I'm told that I'm in error. I want examples, not so that I can learn from them all the time, but sometimes it's like, all right, well, let me give you ten reasons why that didn't really matter, and here's what I was going through on that particular day. And we've all been in that situation where we're sitting down in the boss's office. It's easy. um, It's it's not easy, rather, uh, to submit even to good bosses all the time, much less to unrighteous ones, to the boss that will just cuss you out, to the one who's just going to get mad at you on the factory floor, kick you out, bosses with horrible tempers, And yet, Peter calls us here to an irrespective respect. To respect everyone, irrespective of the way that we are treated by them. So we submit to civil authority. We submit to our masters and serve them. The third point is that our salvation also drives us to suffer while mindful of God. All of this talk of submission and serving, eventually it hurts, right? And so Peter talks about suffering. So look at verse 19 with me, if you would. In verse 19, Peter's talking about suffering in the context of submission to masters, but I think it applies to suffering beyond that as well. He says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and endure and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So what kind of suffering does the apostle have in mind here? Peter is not saying, he's not saying that it's a gracious thing if when you yell at your wife and then blow up on your kids and they happen to give you the cold shoulder the next day, You hang in there like a champ and bear it. That's not the type of suffering he's talking about. He says it's no credit to you if you suffer for your own sin and bear it patiently. Good for you. That's not what he's talking about here. So if if you'll go back with me, and this isn't an experience that I want to dredge up for anybody, but go back with me to math class in high school. I know. I don't want to go back there either. But imagine four quadrants, four quadrants, and, and in these four quadrants, there's, there's different types of suffering and our response. So in the first quadrant, you can suffer justly and graciously. In the next quadrant, you can suffer justly and ungraciously. So uh, the, the husband who, who is a jerk to his family, and then he, they, they give him the cold shoulder, he bears it like a champ. Congratulations, he's suffering justly, but he's suffering graciously it's no credit to him the next quadrant suffering justly and ungraciously this would be if the husband let his wife have it the next day for giving him the cold shoulder so that's that's not commendable in any way whatsoever in the next quadrant imagine suffering unjustly and ungraciously so he doesn't deserve it but he's not being gracious about it either he didn't deserve it but he made sure that everyone at church knew about it the next day would you believe what so-and-so did and finally, the fourth quadrant, could suffer unjustly and graciously. And that is the type of suffering that is commendable, according to Peter. In the context, Peter was preparing the Christians in Asia Minor to suffer undeservedly. They lived in a hostile culture. So even when they do good, they know that they're going to suffer. Verse 12, remember it says, when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when. We may not face the same type of persecution that they did, but we have to remember we're not the only believers in the world. I read a piece in the Chicago Tribune this morning uh, on my phone as I was scrolling through my Twitter feed. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the situation in China at all. Um, when when two of our missionaries, who we typically refer to as D and A because of security, we we just give their first initials of their first two names. That's D and A, not DNA. D and A is the husband and wife. Uh, but they shared a few weeks ago here about a pastor they know in China who's been imprisoned, uh, not released yet to his family as far as I'm aware. Uh, there's some of the worst crackdowns in China on the church, even on legally registered churches since the Cultural Revolution, since Mao. Uh, Xi Jinping, I'm probably butchering his name, the president there, uh, has said that we need to beware of outside religious uh, Influences. And so churches are being torn down, people are being asked to leave, missionaries are being kicked out of the country, they're being brought in for questioning. Uh, Another situation, there was a name some of you might remember, Yusuf Nadarkhani. He's a missionary. I can't recall if he's a missionary, but he's in ministry working in Iran. He's Iranian. um, And He was released from prison several years ago and it was a great answer to prayer and he's back in prison as of this past week. Uh, There's over a thousand Christians in North Korea that are in prison for their faith and no one knows their names. Because of the nature of trying to communicate between North Korea and the outside world. So this prepares us for this type of suffering. We may not have the same type of persecution that the Christians in Asia Minor do and that these believers do who we should lift up in prayer. But we all know what it's like to do good and suffer for it, right? Whether at the workplace or anywhere else. Um, not to compare myself to anyone, but just just a, a story. A couple years ago, I was out shoveling uh, snow in our front driveway and we we live in a uh, condominium development where each driveway is just, it's it's one car width, so it's, it's the length of two cars, just long and narrow and it can just be uh, kind of tricky to shovel your car out because there's no room. There's not really any margin there. And our neighbors next to us, they had a couple young kids, and, and uh, there's a significant amount of snow. And so I figured, you know, let's be a good neighbor. Maybe it'll be an opportunity for witness. You know, I'll go shovel for him and try and build this relationship. And and you know, I was shoveling, and I already knew his name and, and some things like that, but we hadn't been living in the neighborhood that long, and so. Uh, after after I'd shoveled and he'd come out and he'd thank me and he started helping a little bit he you know we started talking and I tried to turn the conversation towards spiritual things and uh, his name is Andy pray for him he, he interrupts me he says I don't want to talk about that you have no idea what you're missing in other words you could be my friend if you just wouldn't bring up this crap that I grew up with it's like don't talk to me about this ever again I was like well. I mean, would you just consider, completely shut me down, but but actually said in no uncertain terms, I will not have a relationship with you because now I see what you're about. Maybe my approach could have been different, maybe it couldn't have been, but the reality is, is that even when we have the best of intentions and we do things the best possible way, sometimes rejection is inevitable. Maybe your friend or your loved one was in sin and you, with trembling lips and clammy hands, lovingly confronted them in about about this apparent sin, only to be shut down, shut out by them. And perhaps that person ran away to another church where they've yet to be confronted and held accountable. Now you're the enemy. And you see them, you know, posting Facebook statuses about you anonymously, complaining about judgmental Christians, and all you were trying to do was look out for your brother and sister in the Lord who seemed to be wandering down a, a bad path. Maybe this person wasn't just a friend or a fellow church member. Maybe it was your child, your grown adult child. It's a blessed thing in the eyes of God to suffer unjustly yet graciously. It's a gracious thing in the eyes of God to suffer when it's not deserved. How? How is this blessed? Well, this isn't the first time that Peter's brought up suffering in this letter. Chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says, In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved with various trials, in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, will be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this this unwarranted suffering in the workplace or anywhere else is blessed because it, it makes it so that our sorrows make that day when we see Christ so much sweeter. When we do see Christ, when he returns or we go to him first, whichever happens first, will make that moment so much sweeter. The relief that will come to us in that moment. Another way that this type of unwarranted suffering, undeserved suffering rather, is. And this is something I stumbled across this week in my own devotions in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says, we are co-heirs with Christ children of God, fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit the universe with him, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So our sorrows not only make the day when we see Christ so much sweeter, our sorrows are proof that we are beloved sons and daughters of God along with Christ himself. And look at where Christ is now. He suffered. He's been raised to the right hand of God and we have that same certainty that we'll be raised. And so, pretty naturally here, Peter just kind of transitions to look at Christ himself. And our third point is that our salvation drives us to Christ as the example of the suffering servant. Look at me. Uh, sorry, look with me. Don't look at me. <laughs> look with me, rather, at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you know that suffering is part of the package deal, right? Philippians 1:29, For to you it has been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. It's a package deal. It costs us inevitably something to follow Christ. Whether it's the sin we want to do, or even if it's just missed time and opportunity and money, relationships or even just a general sense of at-homeness in the world it costs us all something but it's all infinitely worth it because Christ also suffered for you and he left you an example Christ's death is not just an example we do not enter heaven we do not attain salvation because we imitate his example that's not just what Jesus came to do he didn't just come to give an example of love to the world He came to save his people from their sins. And Peter talks about that in a moment here, about the nature of the atonement, that he really was the sin bearer. And if it weren't for that sin bearing, we wouldn't have any hope. But he also does give us an example to follow. Uh, John Piper, a good quote, uh, summarizes it in this way. Imitation, our imitation of Christ is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. And so Peter wants us to imitate Christ and his sufferings. So he goes to Christ as the ultimate example of the suffering servant. So where better to turn to than Isaiah chapter 3, which if you're familiar with the Old Testament is, is referred to as one of the songs of the suffering servant. This is the passage of Scripture that predicts the, the death and resurrection of the righteous Messiah upwards of 800 years before he was even born. So it's a, it's a powerful apologetic tool, but it's also an example for us. And so he draws from it. In Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he had no sin. If Anyone didn't deserve to suffer. If anyone's sufferings were in that fourth quadrant, right, of unjust sufferings, it was Christ. If we all got what we deserved, we'd be in hell tonight. Christ didn't deserve to suffer so much as a red light that was too long. The fact that he had no sin, by the way, is what gives us our hope of salvation, right? Because his righteousness is imputed to us. It's put on our record once we trust in Christ as Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to what to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Not only does his sinlessness give us salvation, though his sinlessness gives us perspective when we are tempted to wallow in our self-pity. This is what gives us perspective when we're suffering unjustly, to do it graciously. He committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Not only did he sin, he didn't complain. There was no deceit in his mouth. Remember where James says in James chapter 3, that whole passage on the tongue? He says, if, if anyone sins in any way at all, if it, it, it's with his tongue, right? If, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Right, so if there's one sin that everyone struggles with, no matter how far along you are in your sanctification, it's sins involving the tongue, it's sins of speech. And yet there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no complaining. He didn't vent his frustrations on a Google review or on Twitter. His feed was blank. There was nothing that he would have posted. He didn't complain at all. And in verse twenty three, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't revile in return. He didn't come back with a railing accusation. He entrusted himself to God as the judge. And you might think, okay, he entrusted himself to to God as the judge. I can do that when I'm suffering at work, right? Lord, your judge, smite them, (laughs) right? We We can all do that. It was more than this with Jesus, though. He entrusted himself silently. In Matthew 26, when he's on trial, he remains silent in verse 63 in the face of accusation. Even though, we're told ten verses earlier, he could have called down ten legions of angels to rescue him. He didn't. And then in Luke 23, 46, we're told that as he's expiring on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He committed himself. He put himself in the hands of God, not just as the executioner, which is what we do when we pray, Lord, just smite my enemies, but as the judge. So how do we pray for our enemies the way Jesus did? It might mean praying, Lord, if this this person is not someone whom you intend to save, if they're not of your elect people, then bring them down, judge them, bring what they deserve upon them. But also, Lord, if it be your will, save them. Because all of their sins will be judged, either in the cross of Christ, if they belong to him, or in themselves. But when we entrust ourselves to God as judge, we're giving him the option of forgiving them if he wants to. Jesus did the same thing. He didn't threaten. Even though when he was walking down the Calvary Road and and the daughters of Jerusalem were weeping for him, there is that moment in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 23... Where he says, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves, right? The day is coming when, when you guys are going to be saying, you know, let the rocks fall on us and the mountains fall on us because the wrath of the Lamb is coming on us. It's this prediction of what would happen to them 40 years later when Jerusalem was judged, invaded by the Romans for rejecting their Messiah. But Jesus wasn't threatening. He was warning. He was giving a woe. Make no mistake, Jesus has wrath. The wrath of the Lamb is the wrath of God. But he's also slow to anger. Psalm 145, he's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He's not an arbitrary, cranky, capricious demigod with a a hair-trigger temper. It's not what we see going on here. He internalizes all of it as he's being beat. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And John Calvin has a great summary of how we should pray for our enemies in imitating this. Because Jesus knew who belonged to God and who didn't. He, but, but we don't know. We don't know if God is going to judge our enemies or save them one day. So Calvin suggests we pray like this. He says, He then, who is so calm in his spirit as to wish his adversaries to become his friends and endeavors to bring them to the right way, rightly commits to God his own cause and his prayer is... Thou, O Lord, knowest my heart and how I wish them to be saved who seek to destroy me. Were they converted? I should congratulate them. But if they continue obstinate in their wickedness, for I know that thou watchest over my safety, I commit my cause to thee. You're truly leaving it completely up to God as to whether or not he saves them. You're inviting him to do so, but you're not vindicating yourself. When he was reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So there's these echoes here again of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, almost verbatim what Peter says. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So notice that when Peter quotes this, he says he bore our sins in his body, not on the cross, but on the tree. Why does he say tree there? He's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which is talking about the blessings and curses for those who obey or disobey God's law. And he says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And the point is this. Paul draws it out in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree so Christ bore in himself the penalty for our sin so that we would receive the blessing that the people of God were promised under his covenant we talk about this all the time right jesus died for your sins we put it on mugs and pens and bumper stickers but we don't slow down imagine truly bearing the sins of another person before god i have a hard time taking the fall for a coworker When they mess up something minor and I'm in my boss's office, I really want to vindicate myself. I really want them to know it was so-and-so, even if maybe I do have some responsibility for it. Imagine facing the tribunal of God, being blamed for the rebellion of other sinners. There's no way, right? Yet Jesus bore our sins, He carried them, he shouldered them. He ate them. He brought them into himself and carried them on the tree. And why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, Romans 6, that we would have a new master. Not that we would continue in sin by no means. Not that we would be able to do whatever we want. Not that we would be able to live licentiously and use grace as an excuse. But that we would actually die to sin, have a decisive break with our old lifestyle And live to righteousness. Have a new, not perfect, but perfect in the eyes of God, life of obedience to Him. That's what it means to be saved, is to embrace not only as Savior, but as Lord. To be dead to sin, to live to righteousness. Verse 25, as we wrap up, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Drawing from Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're keeping track of these quotations of Isaiah 53, if you happen to have your finger in Isaiah 53, you'll notice something here. There's been an incredible reversal, both in Isaiah and in Peter's use of those texts, that the slaughtered, silent sheep that's going to be sheared is now the shepherd. This is coming, by the way, from Peter, who after three times disclaiming to follow Christ, when Jesus restored him, Jesus said what three times? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. The lamb that was slain for our sin is the good shepherd who takes care of us. He brings us back to himself. Not only does he stand in our place to take our punishment But when He does so, He he brings us to Himself. He restores us to Himself. He's also the not only the shepherd of our souls, the good shepherd, He's the overseer, the episcopon, the bishop of our souls, the one who oversees our souls, watches over them, sees to it, and He sees also that your suffering isn't in vain. And as the shepherd and overseer of our souls, our submission and service and suffering because he's watching us, because he's drawn us to himself. If we are in Christ, none of those things are in vain. So just a few quick points to apply this to our lives as we, as we wind things down. Some application first. We would look to Christ. If you're here and if you've never embraced the fact that Christ died for sinners, that he bore the sins of his people, then don't carry them any longer. You're going to have to answer for them if you stand before God with sin on your account. Ask him to bear your sin, too. Come to him and be saved. Look to Christ. Second, be subject to the Lord. So if, if you consider yourself a Christian, but if you don't yet sense that you've had this decisive break where you died to sin and now you live to righteousness, albeit imperfectly, this might be evidence that you've not truly experienced the life of Christ yet, that you still need Christ. So embrace Him. Look to Christ, not only as a Savior who removes guilt, but also as a Lord who gives you a new life to follow. Third, honor and serve everyone. The cranky boss... The president you don't like, city councils, your HOA. I keep mentioning HOA. That one's really for me. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, professors in college, obey all of these authorities for the sake of Jesus. Pray for your enemies. Pray for their, either their judgment or their salvation, but at least give God the option of saving them and endure these injustices as a representative of Christ who endured the worst of all unjust sufferings. So the way you handle those sufferings is going to tell them something about this innocent sufferer you claim to believe in. And last, follow Christ's example in suffering. He was the only truly innocent sufferer None of us, no matter how disenfranchised we feel, are truly innocent sufferers. But he, he had no sin. Our sufferings are light and momentary. But he bore the weight. He bore all of our sin that we never could have, and he did so graciously. So we ought to cling to him not only as our salvation, but also as our example. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, uh, we trust in the certainty of your salvation. You've you've drawn us to yourself. For anyone here, Lord, who, who is not in Christ, I pray that they would be, that they would see the sufferings of Christ, that they would picture what Christ went through on the cross, that they would lay their sins at his feet, and that they would ask for that new life. And We thank you for the promise of your word, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved We thank you that you carried our sins so that we wouldn't have to. You bore the blame that you didn't deserve so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, help us to be witnesses for you in the way that we interact with government, in the way that we hopefully impact the culture around us, in the way that we interact with our our bosses, our employers, and the other lower authorities that you have put over us for our sanctification. And Lord, help us to bear suffering gladly and graciously, knowing that it's not in vain that you watch over us, that you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.